The following is Louise Sorrell and her memories of starring in H.P. Lovecraft's Pickman's Model on Rod Serling's Night Gallery. I was pretty lucky. I started, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse, and then I, uh, I graduated the Neighborhood Playhouse, got a reading for a Broadway show, and got it. Well, it was my 21. I was 21. And, I mean, I didn't even know that there was anything else but going and doing it. You know, I mean, I didn't have, I'd never gotten a job, and I didn't know what it was to do that or what the struggle was or anything because I was so young. And my this agent sent me up from William Morris, and she said, and she had a very thick New York accent. It was this very well-known agent at the William Morris office. And uh, I have all of her letters. She I, I won't go into it. Anyway, um, she said, I'm, I'm sending you up for this. I don't know whether you can do it. She didn't know anything about me. I just landed in her office through my father, really. And she just sent me up just to try something. And I got it. And I thought, well, you know, that's what you do. <laughs> go and you read and you get the job. No. But it was George Abbott. And uh, I read the first time. And he said, thank you very much, in the middle of what I was reading. And I thought, what, what, what? Thank you very much. And I was ushered out. And I I didn't know what happened. I had no idea. And then I read a second time. Again, he cut me off. And that was it. He knew what he wanted. It does resemble a Pickman. Resemble nothing. I'd be willing to bet on it. <laughs> but they all disappeared at the same time Pickman did. Except the four already hanging. And except for this one. Look at it, Larry. Do you seriously doubt its authenticity? There's a signature look. I mean, I did start in high school with drama, and I was absolutely gobsmacked by it when I was 16. I was doing Hecube, the Trojan Women. I was doing Serafina and the Rose Tattoo because this, this wonderful uh, teacher at Hollywood High School saw something. I had no idea. He had me doing John Millington sing and Hecuba and the Trojan Women, and I, I, I didn't know—I didn't know what I—I I really knew nothing. But he kept putting me on stage doing these impossible roles, and then I'd come home and cry and say, "I can't do this." And my mother said, "Yes, you can," because she had been an actress. And I, I just—I had—I didn't know what else to do. It was just theater and boys. And I was completely—that was all I cared about. And I wasn't influenced in a way because my father was a Hollywood producer. I went to the studios, but it was all foreign. You know, it was, I was a young girl. I'd go to the studios all the time. And I don't feel that that was really an influence. My father certainly had never, ever backed me, never came to see my work in school. My mother did, though. My mother was, I think I was actually living out something for my mother. And uh, she, she, she was the one that I felt kind of when I said I'm leaving. I want to go to New York. And they said, How are you going to get there? Now, mind you, we lived in Beverly Hills on Doheny Drive. We weren't poor. And they said, How are you going to get there? I said, I, 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 You have to. There's an airplane. You have to pay for a ticket. So I got this office job down the street, and I paid for my own ticket. And then they said, well, How are you going to live there? Where are you going to live? So I found an ad for the rehearsal club, and I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go there. It was like, they did send me $20 a week, and I went to the neighborhood playhouse. It never, nothing 
I honestly don't even know. It was like I was led by some light. That's all I can say. Yes, Miss Goldsmith. Uh, Mr. Pickman, you keep telling us to paint what we see. But where would anyone see something like that? In my As I said, my mother was from Egypt. She was a classical pianist, a painter, and was called the New Garbo. And my father, as I said, was a Hollywood producer. The fact that they got together is beyond stunning. Uh, my father, as I said, looked like, you know, Sam Goldwyn. He really looked like the classic cliche Hollywood producer with a fedora and the handkerchief. I ironed his underwear and his handkerchiefs, and he was always immaculately dressed with a cigar. It's a, it's a cartoon. I have pictures of him, and you say, that's like, you, that's, nobody would believe that. But he was. He looked just like a Sam Goldwyn, you know, or, or Mayer, or any of those people. And then there was, and he was a, and my mother was this elegant, ravishingly beautiful, well-spoken, well-read, French-speaking, Italian-speaking beauty. How do you put that together? How fortunate that I chose painting for my profession instead of landscape gardening. Not that the demand for my services in the profession I selected has been exactly overwhelming. You have sold some paintings. I did not. I, I have to tell you that my angel was a woman named Phyllis Rabb at the William Morris office. She and Eddie Bondi were the New York agents. Uh, I mean, they were, there are no agents like that anymore. These people came to your openings with roses in their hands. I mean, another time altogether. And Phyllis, I was sent to her through my father, who introduced me to a, a Broadway producer. And he said, well, I think you should get out of the business. You know, you're only 21. Get, stop it. And I said, no. I wrote about all of this. And I said, no. I have. So he sent me to Phyllis Rabbit, William Morris, and, I ha and Sue Mengers. Sue Mengers was this little round blonde in a miniskirt who came out and said, Miss Rabb will see you now. And I was Sue Mengers, who was her secretary. And I went in there, and she, I had long, long hair and all over my face. And I don't know what I – anyway, she looked at me and said, well, I don't know what you can do, but I'll send you for something. <laughs> That's how she talked. And I never heard that sound of my life. <laughs> my mother said it had a British accent. And I, so I, I didn't know what she was talking about. So she told me to go to this theater where I'd seen, oh, God, uh, Ethel Merman. It, so I went to the theater that I'd seen her in, and I looked from the side of the theater. I looked on stage, and I saw all these actors – there was a woman on stage with a script, and she was running them around the theater, the stage. And I thought, oh, my God, I, I can't – I've got to do something different. So I went, and I entered, I said, hello, my name is Louise Sorrell, the stage manager. And he said, all right. And I said, uh, I'm not – he said, are you ready? I said, no, I'm not ready. Which is just – you know, there were 100 people reading. He said, uh-huh. Miss Sorrell is not ready. To Mr. George Abbott. I didn't know. <laughs> So I went upstairs another floor, and I sat there, and I thought, I, there's got to be a way to do this. So when I went downstairs to go on stage, I went on stage first and led the stage manager around who was reading the script, whereas it, it was the reverse. The actors would be following her around, Ruth Mitchell, who I just loved later. And so I, that's how it started. I just went and read 
and Abbott interrupted me. Thank you. you know, and I didn't, couldn't even see him. He's out there in the middle of the darkness. And I left. I didn't know what had happened. I had no idea. So then I read, Phyllis called me back and she said, you're reading a second time. So I read the second time. Again, he stopped me. And I went to my apartment. And I went to the phone. I wrote all of this. I went to a phone booth, put a dime in, which it was then. And I said, call your agents for my service. And she said, I swear to God, I was standing in one of those phone booths on 90th and West End, or Broadway. She said, are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm in a phone booth. She said, you got the job. Oh, my God. I slid down the booth to the floor. <laughs> and I had no money, so I called everybody collect, my parents, my aunt, everybody. And that's how it started. And it was her. It was her. She was my, my angel. So much so that when she died, which was horrifying, she sent me all of her letters to every famous Broadway producer and all the letters that came back to her from all the famous people that she had. And I sat and wept for hours reading these letters, letters to her, letters from her, to everyone she ever had. She sent this all to me. And she was a big agent in New York. She just, we had a, I don't know, you know, magic. Since you obviously insist on savoring the admission, yes, I followed you. Indeed, might I ask why? After the incident at the Art Institute, I thought you might need some sympathetic company. You were in error, Miss Goldsmith. Well, again, you know, that's who my father was for years. So uh, I go back there as an actress, and I became, I mean, they wanted to do one of those, you know, they had these seven-year contracts where you were tied, tied up for seven years with Universal, and, my, and she, Phyllis, said, no, 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 no. So what happened is I kept working there. I was like I was under contract, but I wasn't. I just kept getting one after the other at Universal. It was like a second home. I knew Scotty at the gate. Good morning, Scotty. You know, I mean, it was like, <laughs> uh, I just, it was one show after another there. And a lot. I mean, I was very grateful for it. But at the time, it was just, oh, you have it. Louise, you have to be at such and such, you know, time, six o'clock, such and such for this show or that show. And it was, it, I didn't even know that that's not the way it was for factories. So I was blessed. I paint what I see. And you see your soul as a beast. You see falsely when you look inwards, Mr. Pickman. Or perhaps you do when you look outward, Miss Cole. All I was just doing was going to another job. I don't think it was that. I think maybe they saw something. I have to tell you, I mean, if Jack Laird had only spoken up a few times, because my voice then, in that particular thing, I started mimicking myself as I was watching it. I said, what is that voice? That's like a, an ingenue voice. It's so annoying. It was my voice. Then, and it was sort of a, a high-pitched ingenue voice. And I thought, oh, God. You know, I I just went and did it because they hired me. I mean, maybe it was something about me that felt period to them. I, I really don't know. series of canvases. I heard about it at the Art Institute. Sometimes I drink. And when I drink, sometimes I say too much. A sequence of paintings so horrible that they would turn, turn a man... Turn a man to stone, yes. 
You know what? Truthfully, I just loved acting. I really didn't. I just went and did the jobs. Whatever they, I just threw myself into it. I was a Greek, and I could, I have a good ear, so I was a Greek on the Virginian, played the balalaika, um, and I, I just loved play acting, I guess. And it never occurred to me. I just thought, you know, actors are like, we're, we're, we're sponges, and we just have the best time when somebody gives you something to play with, like a toy in a way. And I, I didn't know, honestly, I can't tell you. All I know is that I went and did it, and I never talked about it. I just flew into it. The earth in dark tunnels, surfacing in the dead of night and returning before dawn. Practice their unspeakable acts and breed their filthy. I remember him as very, as a, the man's man. You know, he's like his name, Jack Laird. And I think what happened, you know, I said to my friend last night as I was watching, I wish Jack had said something to me at that moment. Because I just was, you know, nobody directed you. They just said, you stand here and move over there. That, you know, <laughs> you don't get any direction. Not from a lot of some people. But he was also a producer. And Jack, directing wasn't really his forte, babe. But he, he enjoyed it. So I just remember Jack is um, this kind of manly man guy, and then he hired me for Charlie Chan up in Canada that we shot in Vancouver. So, you know, I guess he liked me. He seemed like this kind of gruff. He wasn't really, but he seemed gruff to me. I don't think he was. It was just his manner. Investing that heart in such a bankrupt enterprise. I think my instinct was uh, something that I didn't even understand, and I'm not so sure that I was. I, I mean, I think I could have probably been better in it had I more, had I been more. Um, I don't know. Had more time. You know, these things they call you at the day before, and you arrive at six in the morning the next day to do the show, and that's when you get the script. So it, it's instinct, and I, I think it was the, the period, the fact that I was I brought up with art in my life, um, that I had a mother who had uh, a European quality about her anyway, which I, I think I inherited, and the, the gentility and curiosity of someone like that was probably what was innate in me but I don't think I did a, you know, a linear, any kind of, I don't know, homework on it. I, I just was instinct, really. A breed of creatures, human, and that's uh, not quite human either. It's supposed to have lived in that part of the city, oh, years ago, now, a hundred years at least. And uh, they dug tunnels all through the area, tunnels under the earth, linking them. What I understood about the relationship between us, which, of course, was a young innocent girl, but who had a high degree of curiosity and something rather idiotic about her that she would go into that place. I mean, as, as you go in there, you say, get the hell out of there. You know, who, who would go into that house? But there was something about her that was ferocious in her intent and uh, not frightened until the very end, of course. You know, she just, she fell in love with him. So she, and I, it was so interesting to watch 
this time noticing the gloves that he was wearing that I bet a lot of people didn't pick up on that watching it. It's very subtle what goes on. And then, well, maybe not so, but, you know, when you watch it again closely and you, you know now that what I would have been was another person to procreate the monster. Um, it, it's interesting to see this, the show again and pick up on little things that go on in it, which I have a feeling a lot of people who watched it didn't pick up on, you know? Traps failed, as did every attempt to smoke them out. They finally ended up sealing off every underground opening they could find and uh, praying that they'd found them all. And nobody told us anything, you know? They just shoot the scene. I'm sure Brad probably knew more than I. He was a bit older. You know, he'd been around. but um, And he was just lovely in it. Really, really special. Almost British. You know, he had a really elegant quality about him in this movie, the Taylor show. Um, and I, I guess I'd, I had that. I inherited something from my mother about that sort of period pieces and because I'd done a lot of theater so I guess it came from that too it was poetic yeah it was also you know different than most of the Hollywood stuff it had style to it and it had, you know, a kind of storyline that was intriguing. It, it was different than anything else that was going on. Richard, you forgot your painting. The other one that was like that for me was Star Trek. Um, I didn't, I said, you know, James Daly and I were saying, we went to see, we were in theater in New York, what are we doing? But in essence, uh, there was something very poetic about the one I, particular one I did. And that was the same kind of feeling. It was, there was something very poetic about it. And that always appeals to me. You know how they shoot those things. All of a sudden, there's this creature. You don't spend a lot of time with them before they become the creature. You know, he just suddenly appears. They don't tell you. You know, they tell you nothing. <laughs> you go on the stage at 6 in the morning, you're bleary-eyed, you know, and then they shoot. And you, they don't really tell you these things. But I have to admit, when I was at Universal, lo, those many years that I was doing, God, everything, I did go to dailies when they'd let me. I was highly critical of my work, but I would go to the dailies, which, you know, fascinated me. 
to see what was going on, and they did let me go. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it's the only way you can sort of uh, see what you're doing, um, particularly on those shows that are so rushed. Um, I don't know. It was interesting to me to go and watch watch the dailies. I didn't always do it, but I, they did let me go at Universal a lot. Well, I was in love with him, fascinated by him, and just trying to, you know, uh, connect. Well, look <laughs> at him. I mean, he's beautiful. Yeah. He was just beautiful in that role. I, I mean, but he was such a pro, you know. Yeah. Just Whenever you can get that kind of connection with an actor, it's so magical. It's so, it's just a gift. Excuse me a little of my pride, for heaven's sakes. I pour out my heart to you a hundred times with the filthiest alleys in the world. I do everything but throw myself at your feet no, and I... No, Mavis, please, I'm the one to kneel to throw myself at your feet, but only to beg you to, to plead with you to leave here now, at once, forever. Sorrell starred in the very first episode of the Night Gallery series, the first season shocker, The Dead Man, and discussed working with fellow actor Jeff Corey. And then, of course, the other one, that I did too. The other one was Dead Man with Jeff Corey, which was another night gallery. I guess I'm good at screaming because I screamed <laughs> a lot in that one. But anyway, they they were just interesting, you know, very poetic and different than most of the work that you did out there. <laughs> it was very important <laughs> to do it the number of times you knocked or something to get him to come back to life. <laughs> I could never remember how many times to knock. And this is Jeff Corey. You know, it's like we worship Jeff Corey. He was, you know, this great acting teacher. But he would remember, oh, my God. I remember being on the set when that was happening. And I had a lot of mixed feelings about it. You know, I was laughing. At the same time, I felt terrible for him. But... <laughs> oh my god and then he would give me acting notes you know whisper things to me which I appreciated but um, yeah <laughs> anyway yeah lovely man really a good man yeah it's a great relief I gotta tell you <laughs> you don't have to go to therapy you can just scream on the set <laughs> Fine, I mean, it's a great when they give you that freedom. You don't get to do that very often. If you do it in real life, they arrest you. I mean, there's so many stories at Universal that make me laugh so hard. Rennie Sanford, <laughs> there was a show with Michael Tolan, and I went up to read for it because you know you had not always but most a lot of times I had to read so I go up and it's for an Indian right an American Indian and I'm sitting out there and Buffy St. Marie came into the office for the same role right 
So I walked in and I said, into the, whoever I was meeting, and I said, you know, <laughs> there's an Indian out there. She's perfect. And they, they hired me, a Jew, okay? <laughs> and they hired Renny Santoni, a Jew and an Italian, to play American Indian. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. Yeah. And Renny is so, was so funny that we, at one point we were going to the commissary. Oh, this is terrible. Anyway, Michael Tolan was a rather, let's say, subdued personality. Somewhat forgettable, but very yes. nice. And we were walking <laughs> by a space that had his name because people could park, and they put their name up there for a parking space. And it was an empty space. And Mike, I've never forget. Renny said, Oh, look, there's Michael's car. <laughs> oh, God. He drove me crazy. He was so funny. And That's I said, really what are we doing? Play Indian. <laughs> what are they doing? He's a Jew and Italian. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, the t Universal was, yeah. we really, it was fun. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> Sorrell had an opportunity to meet and chat with series host Rod Serling later on at the bar of the Plaza Hotel in New York City. Because we had dinner at the Plaza Hotel. I never forgot it. Huh. I don't even know how it happened. It was right after, yeah, it was 71 when we did the show. And, you know, I was back and forth to New York. So I was, oh, I was shooting at the San Moritz Hotel. Some movie, very forgettable movie, but except for the fact that I danced with Bob Fosse on the balcony of the hotel. Very, very subdued, quiet, very modest. Yeah, with not sort of withholding in a way. Not that he was supposed to, you know, but just very quiet, introspective. He he struck me that way, even watching his what he wrote. You know, you have to be that kind of introspective person to create what he did, I think. This thing's hollow. You know what I think, Elliot? I think we ought to open this thing up. Why? What do you think we'll find? Well, and it, it, it's just like a, I don't know what to say except that it's a sweet memory. There's been so much work since then. Because there's, you know, I feel like Thelma Ritter, she's dead. I wrote a piece called Thelma Ritter's Dead, I'm Not. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> so many credits and, you know, so much work. But it, was, it certainly was a sweet memory, uh, particularly working with Brad Dillman. And the, the oddity of it, because most of the stuff you did was rather normal things, you know. They were shows that were not out of the ordinary. They were emotional show. They were all kinds of things, but that show was very unusual. You're all familiar, I suppose, with mediums and seances. The slightly Hi, Scott Skelton here, co-author of Rod Serling's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, and its Rondo Hatton award-winning cousin, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, The Art of Darkness. 
Tom Wright's painting for the Dear Departed is one of the few canvases he kept himself. The original hangs in his home next to the Caterpillar, along with many of the preliminary thumbnails he painted for the series, smaller canvases used to sell producer Jack Laird on his intended illustration of each night gallery tale. I own an art print of it myself, framed and hanging in my living room. Teleplay by Rod Serling. Well, maybe, maybe not. Persistent rumors have dogged this series for decades about the extent of Rod Serling's contributions to the series. Was he just a figurehead? Were all of his scripts heavily rewritten by others? The answers to those questions are no, and emphatically no. However, on a handful of occasions, Laird and company tampered with Serling's work, and The Dear Departed is the single most egregious example of this. On top of radically altering his work, Laird never alerted the author about the changes, so this unpleasant news reached him like a punch in the face on the night the episode was broadcast. If I had to hazard a guess, I'd say Laird was the one who gutted Serling's script. Apart from the first three pages, it was entirely rewritten. Based on a brief short story by Alice Mary Schnuring, The Dear Departed tells the story of two con men running a spiritualist scam, fleecing grief-stricken suckers with promises of contact with their departed loved ones at rigged seances. One of the men is violently killed in a freak traffic accident. When the other attempts a continuation of their sham, conning a client by faking a ghostly apparition, he gets an actual visitation from beyond the grave by his late partner. Serling had to expand the tale, so he added another character and created an entirely new dynamic among the three. In his original submitted draft, conman Mark Bennett, played here by lounge singer and popular Vegas headliner Steve Lawrence, is an abusive son of a bitch, berating his devoted doting partner Joe and trying to bed Joe's wife, Angela. Angela, however, rebuffs Mark's advances and is entirely supportive of Joe. This is a photocopy of the character dynamic Serling featured in his Emmy-winning script for The Comedian, a live television drama produced for Playhouse 90 in 1957. Serling also has a prominent role for a bunko cop, Henderson, who attempts to catch Mark in the act after Joe gets T-boned by a speeding truck. Pretending to be just another pigeon, Henderson attends one of the seances thrown by Mark and Angela, but instead of witnessing a fraud, Henderson catches the real McCoy. Joe returns from the dead as a ghastly apparition, his face bone-splintered and hideously mangled from the traffic accident. For the televised version, Joe receives some tasteful plastic surgery. Aside from the first seance that begins the play, everything else Serling wrote was altered completely. And except for that final censor-motivated detail to avoid gore, it is difficult to fathom why. As finally filmed, Mark Bennett, far from being abusive, is a charmer. Although he is having a now consensual affair with Angela, who has been rewritten as a horny tart, Mark acknowledges his guilt and has great affection for his cuckolded partner. The reason for Laird's changes to the original draft are unknown, but love triangles, a hackneyed convention, have been done to death. Serling's version had an interesting twist, at least, and Laird's decision to turn Joe's wife from steadfast to cheat seems to reflect Laird's suspicious attitude toward women more than Serling's deficiencies as a dramatist. At least with Midnight Never Ends, the rewrite changed none of his characters or his sequence of scenes, only his dialogue. By contrast, The Dear Departed was a complete overhaul. 
used to keep it next to her bed. And when she... Serling's complaints to the press expressed the level of his outrage. Quote, Suddenly I'd look at a night gallery film and I couldn't recognize my own script. People weren't there that I wrote about. Lines were said that I didn't write. Concepts were produced, which I had no knowledge of. I could never find out how or where it had been changed or who did what, and typically nobody would admit to not liking my words. I could only sense that they didn't want the more thoughtful, cerebral items. Unquote. Research has proven that rewrites to the extent of the one I'm describing in The Dear Departed were quite rare. So the patently false misperceptions that have circulated about Rod Serling's supposedly sparse contributions to Night Gallery have to be addressed and countered continually, even today. What added to this misconception, unfortunately, was Serling's lack of involvement in the production side of the series. Because he was rarely seen on a set by members of the production crew, outside of filming the introductions, it was assumed by many that he had very little to do beside playing host, despite delivering more than a third of the series' scripts. Serling himself was quoted more than once, stating that he had nothing to do with the series at all, that his concept had been taken away from him. Most of his exaggerations and tirades followed the midpoint of the second season, by which time he had presumably washed his hands of the show out of frustration and disappointment at being ignored by the producer, Jack Laird. But what Serling was unaware of, he was no longer watching the series at all by this time, according to his youngest daughter, was that Laird had stopped diddling with Serling's scripts. The producer was exhausted from battling with his feisty rival over those surprise rewrites and left his submissions alone. It would appear Jack Laird was also listening to a raft of other complaints, not just from Serling, but from media critics, members of his production and directing staff, and executives at Universal Studios and NBC, who, like Serling, were not convinced the comic vignettes Laird insisted on interjecting into the flow of each episode was helping the show gain anything but critical brickbats and scorn. After the very next episode of the series, which featured two of Serling's finest, Hulaire and Camera Obscura, the comic blackouts disappeared and never showed their ugly heads again during the run of the second season. So, Serling actually won a substantial concession in his conflict with the producer at last, but he never knew it, because he had stopped watching the series Cold Turkey. The sad bit of irony plays as another element in what was quickly becoming the Night Gallery curse, a string of bad luck in the fortunes of the beleaguered series that ultimately led to its cancellation midway through the third and final season. Everything else is just window dressing. If absolute fan disinterest is any measure, The Dear Departed is viewed by most as a lesser offering on the show, bland and featureless, particularly coming after the success of Pickman's model. The segment's final twist could have raised its profile considerably had Laird retained Serling's original plan for Joe's ghostly return, with the ghastly evidence of his horrific death, getting pancaked by a speeding truck, but that was not to be. The comfortable feeling of camaraderie that director Jeff Corey achieved on the set only succeeds in permitting the needed tensions to slip. The pivotal scene where the tone of the play shifts from amusing to ominous is supposed to occur when the adulterous couple receive news of Joe's death. But as directed, the shift doesn't come until later, almost too much later. 
The attempts by Mark and Angela to produce spirit effects at the seance are laughable, and in the build-up to Joe's final ghostly entrance at the end there is little suspense. Aside from Marine Arthur's amusing turn as the oversexed Angela, the performances are fairly ordinary. Corey enjoyed his directing experience, however. He described working with Steve Lawrence and Harvey Lembeck as a hell of a lot of fun, although in retrospect he found the segment a little heavy-handed. Steve Lawrence was best known at the time as a nightclub singer and recording artist, often paired with his wife, Edie Gourmet, as part of a superstar singing team whose popularity made them one of the biggest concert attractions in show business. But for several years, Lawrence had been making inroads into acting, explaining it thus, quote, Breaking into pictures is a thing that's important to one's stature in the business over the long haul. It solidifies the career. Unquote. One of his earliest attempts on television was an ABC television special penned by Rod Serling, A Carol for Another Christmas, a modernization of Charles Dickens' novella A Christmas Carol. Lawrence, in his role as the ghost of Christmas past, held his own, dramatically speaking, opposite such acting heavyweights as Sterling Hayden, Eva Marie Saint, Robert Shaw, Peter Sellers, Pat Hingle, and Ben Gazzara, even earning critical praise. The money he earned for these dramatic forays was inconsequential compared to the coin he and his wife earned in a concert venue. If I did the same 10 days of a shooting schedule in a club or concerts, I'd get 10 times as much money, he admitted. At the time, a week's run in, say, Chicago, Las Vegas, or Lake Tahoe would gross them $200,000 in 1971 dollars, not today's inflated currency. But making pictures, he continued, will enhance my international stature as well. Edie and I have some popularity internationally from our records. Unquote. Lawrence's dramatic appearances on Medical Center, Night Gallery, and later Police Story were not simply vanity projects, but part of his strategy to branch out further into the entertainment field and broaden his appeal. You really need me. I'm gonna stick to you. Playing Joe Casey, Mark's cigar-chomping partner in crime, is Brooklyn comedy actor Harvey Lembeck. He will doubtless be familiar to older TV viewers for his returning role as Corporal Rocco Barbella, one of Phil Silver's sidekicks in Sergeant Bilko, the popular TV series about the misadventures of a self-serving con artist and swindler in the U.S. Army. Lembeck got his first acting start on Broadway. From 1948 to 1951, Lembeck performed in the hit Broadway play Mr. Roberts. The play was an adaptation of a novel by Thomas Hegan, dramatizing life aboard a Navy ship during the Pacific War campaign in World War II. Based on his Broadway success, Lembeck was offered his first film roles by 20th Century Fox. In 1953, a film adaptation of Stylog 17 was produced by Paramount Pictures, and Lembeck was hired by director Billy Wilder to reprise the role he created on Broadway, Sergeant Harry Shapiro. The film became a surprise box office hit and Lembeck won the Theater Owners of America's Laurel Award for Outstanding Comedy Performance. Afterward, Lembeck received more film offers, although he was usually typecast in military roles for most of them. An exception was a steady string of goofy, tongue-in-cheek beach party movies in which Lembeck co-starred with Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon with titles like Beach Blanket Bingo. He had a continuing role as leather-clad motorcycle gang leader and serial doofus Eric Von Zipper, where he exercised his considerable comic chops. Marine Arthur plays Joe's faithless wife, Angela, who, like Lembeck, was also a fluent comic actor. 
playing a cheating con woman. It's a more serious role than she typically got. In the mid-1960s, she had co-starred with later Night Gallery guests Robert Morse, Rudy Valley, and Michelle Lee in the Broadway musical smash How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, playing Hedy LaRue, the quintessential dim-bulb blonde bombshell. Fans of Kolshak the Night Stalker may recall her in another comic performance as a victim of alien abduction speaking enthusiastically about her experience at a meeting of UFO buffs in the episode, They Have Been, They Are, They Will Be. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, and there he is, lying there, propped up on... Based on the evidence of his writing, it would appear Laird was attracted to subjects dealing with marital strife. It appears as a recurring theme in his teleplays for Night Gallery. The Merciful, The Late Mr. Peddington, Stop Killing Me, I'll Never Leave You, Ever, and Die Now, Pay Later, all either about unfaithful wives or spouses planning to do away with their partners. His choice of material for the show, adapted by others, also points to this pattern. The Dead Man, Room with a View, The Last Laurel, House with Ghost, Keep in touch, we'll think of something. Tell David, the caterpillar, she'll be company for you. Something in the woodwork, and the doll of death. It may simply be that the theme of revenge appealed to Laird dramatically, but the soured marriage subtext can still be clearly discerned. Hal Dresner, who contributed three stories to Night Gallery, shed some light on this trend. His experience writing filler stories for Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine led Dresner and his colleagues down a similar path. Quote, Many of the stories that we wrote had to do with husbands trapped in unfulfilling marriages. I'm not saying that we were, but it was one of the ways where you could create a sympathetic character who was about to do an unsympathetic thing, and he wouldn't be immediately rejected by the reader. Because, you know, people have been in difficult relationships and fantasize about getting out of them in any way possible. Unquote. This argument amounts to conjecture, but one thing is certain. Laird was driven to make script changes. Nothing in this script was left untouched, not even the names Serling gave his characters. Joe and Angela Foley became instead the Casey's. The why is a mystery. In this scene in the restaurant, the dialogue is illustrative less of Serling's brand and more of Jack Laird's style. With the snappy exchanges and colorful conversational flair he would demonstrate in his work on Kojak. He also sneaks in a subtle bit of self-referentiality. Joe tries to persuade Mark and Angela to go with him to the movies, A Double Bill. The two films, Dark Intruder and Destiny of a Spy, a pair of features that Jack Laird had produced in the 1960s, a prideful aside for two of his better efforts. Although Serling is listed as sole author of the teleplay, he would never have made these references. It's written all over me. Every time you walk into a room, I'm just one big ghost bump. One of these days, you're going to suddenly be standing around wondering what became of your head. You mean Joe? Just because his temper is invisible. Don't kid yourself that it's not there. The wind is invisible. Do you want to try a cyclone on for size? Oh, Angela, don't be silly. It just, just cool it a little, huh? Casey? Gio said you were Mrs. Casey. Your husband, Joseph Casey? Yes. 
And one of the witnesses said he was just in here, sitting with friends. One of the witnesses? What's this all about, officer? I'm afraid there's been an accident. Truck ran a red light. Your husband was in the crosswalk. How bad? Truck must have been doing about 50. I'm afraid he's dead, Mrs. Casey. Corey's preparations for shooting the deer departed took him to the Magic Castle in Hollywood for research into the trickery of mediums, and he even cast himself as one of the bogus spooks. In the botched seance at the end, Corey provided the voice disguised by playback at wildly alternating speeds of the late Mr. Hugo. We are back in the seance business, darling. Are we? Are you sure? Maybe we should call it off. Cool things down a little till I can find somebody to replace Joe, huh? Sure. Why make it a three-way split now that we are finally a harmonious duet? Let's suppose something goes wrong. Suppose something goes wrong. Honey, my whole life has gone wrong. You, teaming up with you was the first right thing that ever happened to me. The second was that truck driver running the stoplight. It'll work, I tell you. The, the, the fix is in. Everything that Joe did from behind that curtain, you and I can take care of out here. I wish Joe were here now. Ah, ah, ah. Bite your tongue. Now, do you still wish Joe were here? Bring on the rubes. Patricia Donahue, playing the grief-stricken Mrs. Harcourt, showed up in an earlier episode of Night Gallery, playing a psychologist, Dr. Ina Kenty, in an early second-season segment, The Hand of Borges Weems. She has a Twilight Zone connection, too, playing James Daly's demanding wife, Janie, in the classic first-season episode, A Stop at Willoughby. May our hearts be free of bad thoughts. So the actor cast as her husband, the cigar-smoking Horace, is Stanley Waxman, who also appeared in the second season as a math instructor in Rod Serling's much superior segment, The Academy. Waxman was soon to become Night Gallery's main title announcer in the third season, replacing voice actor Mike Rode. As Mrs. Hugo, director Jeff Corey cast Rose Hobart, an old friend from the days of the Hollywood blacklist. She appeared in more than a few genre films, Lillian, Tower of London, The Mad Ghoul, The Cat Creeps, but her major claim to fame would be starring opposite Frederick March in Reuben Mamoulian's classic 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Her appearance on Night Gallery would be her final film role before retirement. We must all concentrate very very hard. Clara, here I am. I 
And there's Jeff Corey, voicing the part of Mrs. Hugo's late husband. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I will contact our spirit guide. Mr. Harcourt, you were told to put out that cigar. Uh, that's, that's why I'm having difficulty in establishing complete contact. Your assistant put it out for me. Too many zooms. This could have been so much more effective with a different makeup choice. The more timid times in television demanded discretion, however, and Night Gallery never resorted to gore for gore's sake. It was just not the style of the show. Remember? We're going to stay a team. Nice use of Paul Glass's score here from A Question of Fear. An act of chivalry illustrates producer Jack Laird's fascination with elevators, or perhaps it was simply quicker and cheaper to produce blackouts, such as an act of chivalry and room for one less using an elevator. And yes, that is Days of Our Lives soap opera star Deidre Hall, who is credited as Deidre Hudson, as the statuesque young woman who has a certain expectation of her fellow passenger. As the specter who loses his head over a pretty young woman, actor stuntman Ron Stein, who was best known for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Star Trek III, and Godzilla, was cast by Laird primarily for his height and incredible good looks. As an inside joke, Jack Laird cast Jimmy Cross as the elevator passenger who pantomimes proper hat etiquette to the clueless specter. In 1957, Cross was best known for playing the elevator operator on the short-lived ABC TV series How to Marry a Millionaire. Now this lame vignette yet again demonstrates why Night Gallery sometimes had a less than stellar reputation in some quarters. By the time the audience slogs through the mediocre Dear Departed and this very unfunny blackout, in the audience's mind, the excellence of Pickman's model is but a distant memory. <laughs> 